It was in the sixth grade that my public school had the sex talk with us. A female teacher took the ladies. A male teacher stayed with us. By all accounts, a great man, pretty good history teacher. You remember that sketch on Saturday Night Live about a man who lives in a van down by the river? So you can imagine what it was like to hear the talk from him. It was awkward. It was awkward for everyone. It was awkward for him, no doubt. It was awkward for us. The title of today's message is Me, Sex, and the Glory of God. And I'm going to be honest, it might get awkward. But I don't think there's a more important conversation we can be having from the scripture today. Speaking of the scripture, it's common to hear people say, but you know, the Bible, when it talks about sexual ethics, that's not really God coming through the pages of scripture. It's just the conservative culture with which it was written. Well, isn't that God says, do this or don't do this. It was the prudish, prudish culture of the first century that the New Testament writers were referring to. It's a persuasive argument. Unfortunately, it's not grounded in reality. I mean, for example, the mythologies of the Greek gods and goddesses. Just a basic Wikipedia knowledge of their stories would tell you that it was not a prude culture in which they lived. They were written in the overlap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, did you know the story of Aphrodite, the goddess of sex, is that she emerged out of a pair of castrated testicles? The things in those mythologies are every bit as alluring, tempting, twisted, and dark as what we have in our culture. See, the reality is, ever since they've been believers, those believers have been out of sync with the culture sexually, just like we are today. Now, it's important to know this is a conversation that we're having in this house. This is not for those out there, but those in here. The scripture was written to the people of God. Yeah, but doesn't God have just one standard that he wants applied to everyone? Well, if you read the scripture from beginning to end, you will see that God does have a will for those who do not believe. First, that they would come to recognize him as God. Second, that they would believe in his salvation through Jesus, his son. And third, they would become a part of his people, the church. That's God's will for those out there. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, a group of Christians wanted their Christian values more reflected in the American government. And so they formed what was known as the Moral Majority, essentially a Christian lobbying group. And they were very effective. They did some good things. They restrained evil in different segments of our society for a while. One of the negative side effects, though, is it confused what God wanted from non-believers. Because essentially what we were saying as Christians, we don't really care if you believe what we believe, only that you would behave the way that we behave. And that's not what we're saying today. This message could easily be confused and be applied to those out there. But God's will for those out there is that they would come to recognize that he is God and they would believe in salvation through Jesus, his son, and that they would become a part of us in here. But this conversation is for us. And not for them. Because Hebrews chapter 4 verse 17 says that judgment should begin with the household of God. 
So we're having a household conversation this morning. And the best place to start is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says this in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And that's the goal, that last sentence, that we would glorify God with our bodies. Why should we do that? First, in your listening guide, a few things I would love for you to write down so you can remember them later. We should glorify God with our bodies because we follow Jesus. He was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He sees four fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He had met them before, but this time he offers them a very simple but powerful invitation. Come and follow me. The scripture says that they drop their nets immediately and they stop primarily being fishermen and they start primarily being disciples. And when they made that decision, they made a commitment to Jesus. Whatever you say, we will do. You are master, we are followers. You are teacher, we are students. And Jesus has been making that same simple invitation every day since then. He may even make it for the first time to someone in this room this morning. Come and follow me. And when you did or when you will, you are making a commitment. Whatever you say, I will do. Why should we glorify God with our bodies? Because God in Christ through the spirit has asked us to. But what Paul gives more specific reasons. Number two, we should glorify God with our bodies because our bodies have been joined with Christ. He says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul says, when you committed your life to Christ, to being a disciple, you became a member of his body. Some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are knees, some of us are elbows, some of us are eyes, some of us are the mouth. But we are a part of the body of Christ. And what he's saying to the Corinthians is how could you disconnect yourself from the body of Christ and connect yourself to a prostitute? Now, the word prostitute meant something very specific to these Corinthians because it was in their past and it was in their present. In the recent past for them, on the mountain that overlooked their city, there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. And if you wanted to make an offering to Aphrodite, you would go up and sleep with one of her many prostitutes that lived in that temple. A few years later, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, prostitution is still readily available. Only this time, I don't have to climb the mountain to the temple. Now it's more common in the streets. A part of Roman culture, prostitution became a rite of passage for young men. It was fine to do. Everyone did it. 
It wasn't unusual in any way. So he's saying something very specific to them. When you disconnect yourself from Christ and connect yourself to a prostitute, you're doing yourself a great disservice because sex brings oneness. That's the way God has defined it. God said that in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and they shall be joined together and the two shall be one. Jesus affirmed that in the gospels when he said a man should leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife and the two shall become one. That's what the apostle Paul is quoting here. God has assigned sex, the power of oneness. And we should use that power to glorify God and not to gratify ourselves. We should also glorify God according to the apostle Paul because sexual sin is sin against our own bodies. Look what he says in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So Paul says, when you committed your life to Christ, to being a disciple, you became joined with Christ, but more than that, you became a temple of the Holy Spirit. Three instances in the scripture, we see a temple being built. First, the tented temple known as the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Then King Solomon, David's son, built a grand temple in Jerusalem. That was destroyed. And in the minor and major prophets, that temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem. And God assigned certain pieces of furniture to occupy that temple. And he gave the directions for those who were building it. And they were made of common things, wood, things that anybody could find out there. But then the priest, according to God's direction would pray for those pieces of furniture and would anoint those pieces of furniture so that they were no longer common, even though they were built from common things. Now they were set apart for something holy and they could only be used in the temple from that time on. So Paul says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the scripture reveals that we worship one God and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Jesus was here, he was crucified, dead, Three days later, resurrected from the dead, spent a few, few days with his followers. He had already told them what was going to happen. He was going to ascend back up to the father in heaven, but they didn't need to worry because he would be sending them the helper, the spirit of God. The first few pages of Acts show us what that looked like. The Holy Spirit coming to dwell in mortals like us. See, we were common. We were ordinary, just like everyone else. But now we have the spirit of God. We've been set apart. We've been sanctified. We are no longer ordinary. So when we sin sexually, what we are saying to God is, I know that you've set me apart, but I just want to be ordinary. And when we sin sexually, it's not just sin. It's sin against the dwelling place of God. So it's different. Which leads us to the most important question of the morning. What does the scripture consider sexual sin? That's the question we need to be asking. It's the only question that matters on this topic. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what a famous person says. It doesn't matter what the Republicans say or the Democrats say or the Independents say. It doesn't matter what your granny says or your mom, or your dad. It doesn't even matter what you say. But what does the word of God say? 
People have been leaving the church in droves over this question. And I'll be honest, 30 seconds after church is over, I assume you know how to Google. You can find somebody, an expert, who will tell you what you want to hear. They're going to tell you about a little bit of historical trivia and how you can't trust the plain and simple reading of the scripture. But you don't know enough on your own to be able to discern the will of God. In 30 seconds, you can find somebody who will tell you what you want to hear. But again, the question is not what do the experts say, but what what does the word of God say? But people have been leaving the church worldwide because of the answers to this question. What does the Bible consider sexual sin? Because we feel stuck, don't we? We can either condemn people and have biblical sexual convictions, or we can conform and no longer have biblical sexual convictions. And no one has really helped us see a good third way of how we can be a great friend and a loving family member and still believe what the scripture says. So we feel like our options are binary. We either choose to condemn people or we just conform like everyone else. But as always, Jesus shows us a third and better way. See, Jesus was loved and accepted by those who he preached against. We see multiple times he's partying, at least in the words of some religious fundamentalists, partying with tax collectors and sinners. The sinners, they just did whatever they wanted to do. I know that's hard for you to imagine what it would like to be around people like that, but they just did whatever they wanted to do. And so their lifestyle reflected that. But it was Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, be holy as God is holy. I mean, you talk about a standard for living. Be holy as God is holy. The tax collectors loved Jesus. They were stealing systematically from people a little bit at a time to line their pockets and to make themselves very, very wealthy. Remember, it was Jesus who said what? You can only serve one or the other, God or money. You can't serve both. It was Jesus who said, what does it matter if someone gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It was Jesus who told people, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. He preached against them and and they loved him in instances. Read the gospels and trace Jesus's popularity. It waxes and wanes. It's high and low. There are times when great crowds surround him and there are times when it's just his committed few. And yet always Jesus is the same, whether he's loved or accepted. See, it should be a good and right thing that your friends and family and mine that disagree with our biblical convictions love us, invite us, confide in us. It may even annoy some of the more religious among us to see you, quote, partying with those people. And we have to be okay being loved and accepted by people who are different than us. But then there are going to be times when they hate us and despise us for the very things that we stand for. And we have to be okay with that too. Because we're followers of Jesus. We're going to follow in his steps. Sometimes we will be loved. Sometimes we'll be hated. Sometimes we'll be accepted. Sometimes we'll be rejected. Sometimes they'll come for advice. Sometimes they'll want nothing to do with us. Our job is to stay the same, always, just like Jesus. See, our options are more than just to condemn or conform. But what does the scripture say 
is sexual sin. Well, let's start with an equal opportunity offender. One all of us in this room have been guilty of, I'm guessing in the recent past, lust. Lust is a sexual sin. And Jesus was militant against lust. He's the one who said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Now he doesn't want you to do that literally today, but he for sure does not want you to lose his intensity about fighting lust. Sex outside of marriage is sexual sin, according to the scripture. Whether it's a one night stand, you're in a committed dating relationship, or you are engaged to be married. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14 says that the marriage bed should be held in high esteem by all. And when we take sex out of the marriage bed, we are not holding it in high esteem. That's why if you're planning on getting married to the person you're dating right now, or you are engaged, stop sleeping together. Stop. Because you're disrespecting your marriage. Not because of what happens in the bed, but because of the one who created the bed. Don't borrow on your future. You're taking out debt now that you think you'll pay back when you say, I do. But God says, hold it in high esteem. Same sex, sexual relationships are considered out of bounds by the scripture. God speaks to this issue consistently, directly and indirectly in the pages of his word. Again, in the beginning, it was Adam and Eve that he brought together and the two shall become one through sex, becoming one flesh. Jesus again affirmed that. The apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter six speaks to that issue explicitly just a few verses before verse 15. And all of the references that you can see on the screen today speak to that issue. Adultery is considered sexual sin by the scripture. It even made the 10 commandments. So, you know, it's serious. Seems like every other proverb is about adultery. It's out of bounds for us. Pornography is sexual sin. Gallup produced a study just this week that 30% of young adults and teenagers do not consider pornography morally reprehensible. And in fact, see it morally acceptable. Pornography used to be something that we assume everyone was doing, just doing it in secret. It wasn't something that you would talk about among your friends, but a growing segment of our younger population says, well, why wouldn't I bring it up? There's nothing wrong with it. And yet every study that is done about pornography, I'm not even talking about every Christian study. I'm talking about every study done by whoever talks about the damaging effects to us through pornography, sociologically, psychologically, and emotionally. It's what the psalmist said in Psalm 119 when he said, I turn my eyes away from worthless things. There is not anything more worthless in our world than pornography. And we have to turn away. Solicitation, hiring a prostitute is a sexual sin. I mean, Paul speaks to it specifically here, as do many of the Proverbs. Making a move towards becoming transgendered is out of bounds according to the scripture. In Genesis chapter one and two, we see God intentionally and very specifically creating the world. There is nothing random about the Genesis accounts. Very, very specific and intentional in his wording and then what happens after his wording. And if you read the Genesis accounts, the pinnacle 
of his creation, according to his own storytelling, is you and I, Adam, male, and Eve, female. But we say, oh, that's in the Old Testament, though, as somehow being in the first half of the Bible makes it less relevant than the second half. But Jesus, whom everyone loves and everyone follows, says in Matthew chapter 19, have you not read that in the beginning he made them male and female? Virtual reality is on us. Most of us don't have access to it right now, but you're reading about it. Maybe some of you do. You don't have to be a prophet to realize the trouble we're gonna get into with virtual reality because it's going to give us the opportunity to do this entire list without leaving our home. These are some of the things that the Bible considers sexual sin. And remember, this is not a talk for those out there, but those in here. There are a few myths that I want you to write down before you leave today that I think will be helpful to us in understanding more about what God's will is for us sexually. Myth number one, God only cares about my spirit. We're always talking about the soul. That's what God really cares about. That was a heresy to the first believers known as Gnosticism, a separation between my body and what I do physically and what I do spiritually. But the scripture shows us that God just considers you one person. You are body and soul. And we should glorify a God with our bodies. Myth number two, if my heart is in the right place, that's what matters. We're planning on being married. I mean, he hasn't asked me to marry him yet. I don't know why, but we're planning on being married. At least I'm planning on being married. We're engaged already. We love one another. We're committed. That's what matters, right? You hear people say, well, I've prayed about it and God has given me peace. That's like me telling my children to go upstairs and clean their room. They disappear for a while. They come out and they said, we prayed about it. We don't have to clean our room. (laughs) Think how offensive that must be to God when we do that, which all of us have done for some reason or another. God has given us clear instructions and yet we have prayed about it to the one who gave us instructions supposedly. And he has given us a peace that is only specific to us. Everyone else must abide but I have peace because we think as long as my heart's in the right place and I still want to read the scripture and I'm still hungry for God and I still enjoy going to church, then it's not having any negative effects on me. But there are some things in this world we do because the master says do, not just because they have benefit to us personally. Myth number three, God wouldn't give me desires that aren't his will, right? This is what I feel. This is what I have always felt for as long as I can remember. I didn't ask for this. This is just what's in my heart. There's a little verse tucked away in the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse nine. The heart is deceitful above all else and it's desperately sick. Don't trust your desires. Don't trust your heart. 
makes a lovely Hallmark card and good romantic comedies. It's bad advice. Now, God can sanctify our hearts. He does and will continually give us pure and pure motives coming from inside of us. But as long as we are in this earth, don't just trust your heart. It's sick. It's not your heart's fault. It's sick with sin inherited from your ancestors, Adam and Eve, passed down through your lovely parents. You'll pass it down to your children. Your heart will lie to you. Never underestimate its ability to fool you. So just because it's a thing we desire doesn't mean it's a good thing. Myth number four, sexual desire serves no purpose if I'm not married. If you're single today and the Apostle Paul could just materialize from heaven right here and read to us his own words that were inspired by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians. If you were single, he would plead with you not to get married. He would beg you not to get married because he knew how much more fruitful you could be for God's kingdom. To all of us married folk, he would just look at us and say, no self-control. He knew that after work, if you're single, you can go and serve the homeless. You don't have to worry about being home for dinner. He knew on a Saturday when you're supposed to be at home with your family, you could go and teach ESL to recent immigrants here in Houston because you don't have obligations to anybody. You're free to serve using all of your energy. And what he would tell us about sexual desire for the single person is not words that would come cheap. He was single himself. He would say, use that. See, what we wanna do when we're single is just stuff all of that desire down. Make it go away. Put it in a lockbox, throw away the key, and then hand the key to some person that we will marry in the future. But Paul would say, don't do that. Think of it as fasting. When we fast from food, we're still hungry. We just redirect that hunger to prayer. We redirect that hunger towards studying the scripture. We redirect that hunger to making a difference in this world in Jesus' name. So if you're single today, don't stuff your sexual desire thinking it has no purpose. Use it to make this season of your life the most effective that you can possibly be. And myth number five, sexual sin won't be an issue once I'm married. Many people think that marriage is just a magic wand that makes everything better. And all the married people said, not amen. (laughs) Marriage, the big day, it feels like a do-over. Like you just start fresh, you get a clean slate. And the person you've been before that moment suddenly dies and a new person is born with great character and high moral, biblical excellence. And that's just not the case. If there are cracks in your character now, once you get married, there'll be chasms. If you're dating somebody or engaged to somebody and you think that they're going to turn into a different person once they're married, they won't. Instead of becoming a different person once you're married, you just become more of the same person. When you think about it, in your dating relationships and in your engagement, you're trying to only present your best self. You're trying to hold the real you under wraps so your in-laws don't find out. But once you get married, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 
No one goes home at the end of the night and the real you will come out. Marriage is not a magic wand. If sexual sin is relevant for you now, it will be relevant for you then. If you're sleeping together now and you think somehow once you get married, it magically goes away, it won't. It just turns into something else once you're married. So stop now. These are the myths of our culture when it comes to sex and our thinking about God. There are two commands in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20. The last sentence was the goal. Glorify God in your body. There's another one tucked away in the middle. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. You know what flee means? It means to run away. It means to vanish. As I mentioned, the Proverbs have a lot to say about the wisdom of avoiding sexual sin. Proverbs chapter five, the author of Proverbs is speaking to a young man and he's encouraging him to stay on the straight and narrow path and not to divert down to the house of the adulteress. Obviously, specifically adultery is mentioned, but it represents sexual sin in general. He's saying, don't veer down there. Don't go down to that house. All of us have at least veered off the road at some point or another. We like to rank all of those sins on that list of which one is the worst, but God doesn't do that. In fact, in James, he says, if you were guilty of even one of them, you were guilty of all of them. So there is no ranking. All of us have veered off. Some of us have may find ourselves having veered off recently. Maybe just a few steps, maybe just, I don't know, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is just pornography with a better story. And just because it has an entertaining plot line doesn't make it okay. I mean, it's not the worst thing that you can do, but it's just, just a few steps off the path. Some of us have gone a little bit further down the path towards the house. Some of us have stood on the porch thinking about, should I go in? I don't want to go in. I know God doesn't probably want me to go in, but here I am. I feel left out. Honestly, feels like everybody is doing this. feels like there's no hope. It's just the cultural tide, even the cultural tide of Christians. It's just, I just got to give in to it. I don't want to be single forever. Who can resist? I've tried, I've failed. Some of us are knocking on the door. We're actively seeking it out. There may be a part of us that's praying that no one answers. God, I'm getting ready to do this. If you don't want me to do this, then make it stop. Some of us have gone all the way in. And Paul's word to us today, if we want to glorify God with our bodies, is flee. Not one of us in here today is a strong enough saint to resist the pull towards sexual sin. Not one of us can stay there and fight it. So Paul says, flee, vanish, run away. But you don't run away as a coward. You don't run away as a loser. You run away as a champion because it's the race that Jesus wants you to win. You flee. And so if you are somewhere between the straight and narrow road and the house or even in the house today, flee, disappear from it, run away. 
Don't stay and fight. Just run and be glad. We're gonna finish service today with communion because as I mentioned, all of us are guilty today. Not one of us has their hands cleaned when it comes to this. And our natural instinct will to be to make it up to God. God, I realize what I've done and I know I shouldn't have done that. Let me make it up to you. Let me string together a certain amount of days where I do it right and get back into good graces with you. But thankfully, communion tells us we don't have to do that today. Whether you've just veered off the road or you've gone all the way into the house, you don't have to atone for your sin. Jesus has already done that for you. And physically, we're going to rip the bread, remembering the broken body of Jesus. And we're gonna dip it into the cup, remembering the shed blood of Jesus, remembering that he has forgiven us of our sin. So if today you realize, I am sinning sexually against God, you're forgiven in Christ. There's nothing else that you have to do, but just receive forgiveness. We've already been atoned for. So why don't you stand to your feet? Later on in 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul is gonna tell us how to take the Lord's Supper. And he says that before we do, we should examine ourselves. So why don't right where you are, if you'll just take a second and pray. Just ask God, examine me. Is there any sin in me? Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's maliciousness. Maybe you've been lazy. Maybe you were rude. Maybe you've been worrying instead of trusting. Just confess your sin. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. So be cleansed today in Jesus' name and by Jesus' blood and broken body. Washed and accepted, loved, brought near. God, sanctify this time. It's just common juice and common bread but make it uncommon in its meaning and celebration in Jesus name